ReachMD now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Dr. Smat Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. My co-host, Dr. Michael Greenberg, is off this week. He's busy playing the role of patient number one in the epic saga we call elective knee surgery. Michael, I know you're listening, buddy. Get better soon. But fear not, all ye Greenberg fans. The one upside of an elective procedure is that you can plan ahead. And Michael did just that. Today, we've got an exclusive interview between him and Dr. Alan Roberts, author of the new memoir, Hot Flashes in a Cold World, My Struggle to Be a Husband, a Doctor, and a Man in the Face of Prostate Cancer. Trust me, you do not want to miss that interview. In the meantime, I'll be sitting down with an expert on the health risks of, well, sitting down. Dr. James Levine from the Mayo Clinic is a renowned researcher and activist in the fight against sedentary lifestyles. You won't believe how much creativity goes into measuring inactivity or what he's found out about the modern desk jockey and couch potato. All that is coming up on today's edition of Second Opinion Live. But first, as we always do at the top of the show, let's turn to a few recent headlines from the world of medicine. Bloomberg News and the Wall Street Journal report that a brain bank called the Brain Observatory at the University of California, San Diego, plans to build a library of 1,000 brains over the next decade. Spooky. Now, the Brain Observatory was started in 2008 with the acquisition of the brain belonging to Henry Molaison, known as Patient HM. Now, a little history refresher for you. This was the most famous amnesiac who ever lived. HM lost his ability to make short-term memories, and I'm talking anything after 20 seconds. After undergoing brain surgery in 1953 to correct a seizure disorder, he was subject of ongoing study for over 50 years until his death in 2008. Now, the Brain Observatory's aim of collecting a 1,000 brains goes way beyond simple preservation. They're making brain biographies over there, basically. Each brain gets sliced and then digitized. So we're talking over 2,600 sections of a single brain, which is only 70 microns wide each. That's a human hair's width, just for reference. And the imaging of all sections amounts to about a petabyte of data storage per brain. <laughs> now, I don't think I've ever used the term petabyte, so I'll spare you the detail and just say it's huge. There's a lot of data storage. And that's just what goes on after death. It's all about the life story for volunteers before then, and we're talking a very complete life story. But before you jump on that ticket for San Diego, take note that they're not looking for just any brains. They want interesting brains from people who've led interesting lives. And you're probably thinking, well, everyone's interesting in some way, and true that, but Are you as interesting as Betty Ferguson, who's 92 with memory totally intact, and by the way, played a flying monkey in The Wizard of Oz? Well, she signed up, and that's interesting. So did a woman who apparently can't feel fear, as well as a family with no sense of smell. Pretty interesting people. So think of it as the varsity team of brain donation, if you will. And if you've never earned a varsity letter in high school, and no, marching band does not count, well, there you go. Next, from brain banks to belly buttons... How about that transition? The New York Times reports that biologists at North Carolina State University have launched a project to catalog the organisms that live on our skin, and they're starting with the belly button. Why belly buttons, you may ask? Or not, but I'm asking, and it's my show. Well, researchers say it's because fewer people volunteer when they're asked for armpit samples, and because belly buttons are physiologically perfect environments for bacteria. 
extra points because a lot of people don't wash them very well, president company excluded. Ultimately, the aim of the Belly Button Biodiversity Project, and yes, that is what it's called, is to find out more about the good germs that keep us healthy, plus figuring out what thrives where, whether germ species on men differ from women, spoiler alert, they probably do, etc., etc., etc. They write, the first step is to simply see who's there, the way first explorers, upon arriving at new continents, wrote home to describe what they've found. Well, I think that's a pretty noble statement, but here's another way that I would like to phrase it, picking at belly button lint and calling it science. I, for one, am all for it, as are most of my producers, I would say. The project began in February, about 500 samples collected so far, and samples include a swab plus information on the subject's age, sex, ethnicity, residence, and probably most important, whether it's an innie or outie. <laughs> you can view the bacteria galleries at wildlifeofyourbody.org. Again, that is wildlifeofyourbody.org. Interesting website title. All right, on to the next story, and my co-host Michael, if you're home listening, this one's for you. News from the world of pain management. Swearing is good for you. Wow, swearing is good for you. Well, I knew that. <laughs> this story is from a two-year-old study published in the journal Neuro Report, which for some reason was making the rounds again these last couple of weeks. Researchers at Keele University in the UK asked some test subjects to put their hands in icy cold water and see how long they could keep them immersed. Now, by the way, cold water experiments are a very common way to test pain since cold water doesn't really hurt test subjects. And you can tell by the way I just said really. I don't really agree with that because anyone who's ever taken an ice bath for whatever ungodly reason knows, well, it hurts like a Now, subjects were told they could either say a swear word or a clean neutral word, such as Jiminy Crickets or Fiddlesticks, and those who exercised their right to swear had decreased pain perception, higher heart rates, and longer submersion times under the icy cold water compared to those who said a neutral word. But the effect was most significant for people who did not typically swear very often. So that takes my co-host Michael out of the running. I know you're listening, Michael. <laughs> Researchers think the mechanism of this apparent hypoalgesic effect of swearing may be due to a fight-or-flight response induced by swearing, which nullifies the link between fear of pain and pain perception itself. Now, I would have thought it was just a more expressive way of distracting yourself from pain, saying anything, jeepers, creepers, it's just not going to do it. But what do I know? I'm just a classy radio guy who never swears. Speaking of real class, though, our upcoming guest has proven without a shadow of a doubt that the healthcare community can and should do more for people who do less. Couch potatoes, desk jockeys, rejoice, someone is looking out for us, and his name is Dr. James Levine, endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Levine's research focuses on the health effects of inactivity and he's come up with some ingenious ways of obtaining accurate measurements so as not to rely on others' self-reported information, which we know can become pretty faulty. That's led to some surprising findings and even more creative solutions. Now, if you've ever heard of the treadmill desk, you're getting a pretty good idea of where his research has taken him. We have Dr. Levine on the line now to tell us more about his research and creative strategies to combat sedentary behavior. Dr. Levine, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Thank you very much indeed. It is absolutely a pleasure to be here, and I hope you're active in the studio as I am here in Rochester. Well, the pleasure is all mine. Now, how did you find yourself 
in this field of study. And don't tell me it was because you were sitting around just thinking of something to do, because that would be too perfect. Unfortunately, the answer is far worse than that. Um, it all started when I was <laughs> about the age of nine. And I became, I became obsessed by pond snails, which I think is a common childhood obsession. Um, pond snails. Pond snails. I'd love to see where this one's going to (laughs) go. Well, after inverted and everted belly buttons, it can't go too far. Um, (laughs) The um, I I I I was musing, I think, as a kid, watching this pond snail sort of meandering across a rock um, in a pond in Regent's Park, and I became and and the question I asked myself, and it's funny what children sort of get into, is is would it be the case that if I took this pond snail home as I did, um, it would continuously do a sort of a walking swirl around movement? Or is it that the swirling around the rock was for some reason predicated by it being in the park and having me watching it? And what happened was I built these, um, they're like fish tanks, narrow fish tanks, whereas during the night what I would do is I'd map the movement of pond snails and I'd identify them by the markings on their um, shells. And every half an hour, I'd wake up and put an X on the glass tank where the snail had moved to. And the hypothesis was that snail X, let's call her Georgina, continuously moved in the same way every single night. So if Georgina was hot or cold, you know, Monday, Wednesday, or Friday, uh, she would always move in swirls. Frank, on the other hand, would always move in a zigzag pattern. I think we'd all ask that kind of question of Georgina. Georgina's out there everywhere. Well, we all know Georgina, <laughs> um, for all of us who have friends who are pond snails. And, <laughs> and indeed, I proved to be absolutely wrong after two and a half years of study. And you can imagine what this does to you know, a boy who's going through sort of pubescence as a, you know, you know, living in London. And he spent two and a half years on a project with pond snails and found it was all wrong. But what I did find was that Georgina may not move in swirls all the time, but Georgina always moved in a straight line. In other words, she didn't sort of zigzag across her path of movement. What actually happened, on the other hand, was that Frank, if Frank was a sort of a sort of a a, a, a jagged uh, mover across the glass, he was always a jagged mover across the glass. And I'm and I'm being deadly serious. That fascinated me to this very very point in time as to why on earth it is that somehow we're programmed to move in very specific ways. And that is exactly what precipitated, and I'm not going to tell you how old I am, suffice it to say, four decades of research, (laughs) uh, to, to try and understand why it is people move in different ways or consistent ways for themselves, but different ways to others, and what the implications of that is for health. So you mean the movers versus the shakers, essentially? The movers versus the shakers. Or the non-movers at all. (laughs) You know, and of course, um, you know, we're having a private conversation and no one else can hear us. Naturally. But but naturally. But the title of my next book will be The Movers versus the Shakers. What a fabulous way of thinking about this research. Because that's exactly right. It appears that the people who are programmed, and and again, thinking about brain banks and 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 the anatomy and physiology of the brain, it appears that the brains of movers are very different to the brains of, if you like, non-shakers, to, of the still. The brains of movers precipitate significant movement, both in the coffee house, where you sort of, we all know these people, you're sort of waiting in line for coffee, and somebody sort of bounces up and goes and grabs sugar and then sits down, bounces up and grabs the paper, versus the stills, 
were sitting there very quietly sipping on their herbal tea, you know, plowing their way through the New York Times. I would have thought that was just a sugar or caffeine difference. You would have two. thought <laughs> so, but, 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 but again, I mean, you, again, you touch on such an interesting point because even those behaviors of choosing stimulants, one might argue, are in, in of themselves, we would suggest, predicated by this neuronal circuitry that's precipitating movement in, other, in some people, but, but motivating others to become still, to remain sedentary and bound to the chair. Why don't we get right into it then? We've got about five minutes. Um, oh my and I want to learn about the field of inactivity studies in general. Mm. You know, in your case, how is this work challenging what we normally think about health and activity levels? I think most importantly, the, the notion that you have an entire population crammed into chairs not only is associated with low calorie burning and predisposition to obesity and weight gain, but what is also very clear is that if you can get people out of their chairs and get them moving, you're seeing very similar health benefits, whether it's with respect to obesity, diabetes, hypertension, stress prevention, to those individuals who are religious gym goers. And so all of a sudden, the fact that you have an entire population tied to the chair, sentenced to the chair, so to speak, makes one contemplate the impact of this on national health. The fact that we spend most of our living life in a chair mm -hmm. seems to have very substantive implications for diabetes prevention, blood pressure, and so on and so forth. And so all of a sudden, this is, as you say, a science that is emerging. It's as if we need the entire population to stand up and get moving. Is there a link necessarily between the rising rates of obesity, diabetes, and sedentary behaviors? I mean, I figure desk jockeys and people that have been what you would call couch potatoes have existed for the past 50, 60 years, and yet the rise of obesity and diabetes has really exploded in the last 30. When you really look back at the data, you see the emergence of obesity since the Industrial Revolution. So first of all, you had the agriculturalists moving into cities. You had factory workers, people starting to take to the chair in the factory environment. You then had the technological revolution over, uh, with urbanization over the next 50 to 20 years, so to speak. And, then, and with that concurrent locking of people into chairs, whether it's in front of computers at work, more than half of the developed population, half, more than half of people living in the developed world work behind computers now. Car drive, you know, how many people have multiple cars? I don't know how you drive multiple cars at the same time. But, but it, is, it is that desk jockey, as you put it, predisposition that appears to track very, very well with obesity. And in fact, there are beautiful data that track the number of people with drive on lawnmowers, washing machines, dishwashers, so on and so forth, tools of convenience, so-called, that appear to correlate very, very well with obesity rates. What other comorbidities or health risks are out there besides obesity itself? Are there any other more specific outcome measures that you've studied? Yeah, we've been very, very interested in prevention of diabetes and the implications of activity on patients who have diabetes, understanding this is, of course, 7 to 10% of the population in of itself. And it appears that getting people out of their chairs and moving profoundly, profoundly impacts the postprandial glycemic excursion. And I know that's a common term. Um, that is the change in blood glucose that occurs after a meal, which is a, a very substantial part of diabetes predisposition. So we know that movement is important there. We know that import, movement is also important in vascular reactivity, as in blood pressure control and how, the, and how blood is circulated to small parts of the body, so to speak. I see. You know, we know, too, that 
you know, there are universal, there are multiple studies now looking at walking programs, for example, in prevention of depression. And all of us know from our own experiences, sometimes you have a bad day, going for a walk makes you feel better. And so you're right, and it's certainly not our group at, uh, alone at all. There are multiple groups, scientific groups now, that have sort of taken this on board, so to speak, to try and ascertain how deep chair-based living is impacting our health. And it seems to be that it is affecting multiple facets of the, of, of the sedentary malaise that impacts many of us. I believe you turned that the soul of the nation, am I correct? affecting what you believe is beyond the physical impacts. I agree. I think the soul, I think the soul of, of the nation is, is, is up for grabs, so to speak. I mean, if you go into a modern cube-based office, you sense a deep malaise amongst the entire workforce. I think there is an opportunity for us to, if you like, rise up, so to speak, and, and really grasp the soul of our nation in our hands. Because, look, if we're going to have an unhealthy next generation the generation afterwards is going to be more unhealthy still. And unless we do something about it now, we're lost. And if the answer is to get out of the chair, then we must do it. Dr. Levine, that's a perfect finishing touch. I, Ten minutes is nowhere near enough time for us to be able to cover or even scratch the surface of this topic, and it's so interesting. I'm definitely going to have to have you back. I hope that you will uh, join us in the near future. I would be thrilled, and an uprising is upon us. <laughs> I will take your word for it. That was Dr. James Levine, endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Dr. Levine, thanks again for your time. My pleasure entirely. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. So this week, my co-host, Michael, finds himself in that seemingly unusual and uncomfortable position that every doctor finds him or herself at times, and that's being the patient. On that very subject, Michael recently talked with Dr. Alan Roberts, author of a memoir titled Hot Flashes in a Cold World, My Struggle to Be a Husband, a Doctor, and a Man in the Face of Prostate Cancer. Most of us sooner or later find out what it's really like to be as the one in the hospital gown, learning what our patients already know, such as what it's like to get a frightening diagnosis, how to choose a specialist, and of course, how to get treatment, and coping with other factors such as side effects, which we ourselves may not be counseling patients enough about. Here's Michael's interview. I'm talking today with Dr. Alan Roberts. He's an associate professor of medicine in the section of general internal medicine at the Medical College of Georgia and an elected fellow of the American College of Physicians. His personal memoir of being a physician and a patient with prostate cancer is called Hot Flashes in a Cold World, My Struggle to Be a Husband, a Doctor, and a Man in the Face of Prostate Cancer. Alan, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you. Let's start with a kind of an overview here, and I have to give a disclaimer to our listeners that I also have had prostate cancer, so it's two guys talking about the same subject. You were diagnosed with prostate cancer in 1999. What was your diagnosis, Gleason score, all that, and what treatment did you decide to have? When I first found out about it, my PSA had gone up, and because it had gone up, I went to a urologist who felt the palpable lesion, and then they did a biopsy. The biopsy, I think they took 12 bites, but I'm not sure at that time whether they were doing 12 or less. But he took a number of bites, and on one side, all of the biopsy specimens showed prostate cancer with a very high Gleason score of 9. When you get a Gleason score of around 9, that's a highly malignant cancer. The fact that they could feel it made them think that it was locally invasive rather than just 
totally inside the prostate. And because of that, they did not think that radical surgery, radical prostatectomy was an option. Instead of that, I went up to Tufts New England Medical Center where they had started working on intensity modulated radiotherapy, IMRT. And so that's what I did. I went up there and had that treatment given. Let's go back a step. The first doctor you went to, the first urologist, how'd you choose him? Was he or she a friend of yours? No, I called an OBGYN friend of mine. There was nobody here at the medical college that I knew well enough or respected enough or felt secure enough not to get other opinions. So I called this doctor who's a good friend and an OBGYN guy who's been in practice here for over 20 years, and he recommended the doctor that I went to. And I think that's key. I think so many of us will just go to a friend, but I think you did something great. You took care of yourself like you'd want to take care of a patient. Go to the best person, not just to somebody you knew. Right. Okay. How did you feel when you got your diagnosis? How, did you, how was the diagnosis delivered to you? Very frankly, I was too nervous to have him call me with the diagnosis. I told him to call my wife, Janet. And when she got the diagnosis over the phone, it was over the phone, he gave her the diagnosis. I was still at work, and she called me, and she was crying, and she said, come home. And when she said that, I knew that I had prostate cancer. Did you kind of know before because it was palpable? I felt I did, yes. Okay. How did you feel when you actually got the diagnosis? I mean, I know how I felt. I felt that I was you know, not going to live that much longer. I expected the diagnosis, but I felt that with the Gleason score of nine, I really didn't think my life expectancy was going to be more than a year or two. So what was your next action? Well, my next step was to call my good friend who was a urologist at Brown University, who we happened to go to medical school together And then we practiced uh, in the same town in Florida for about 20 years together. Then he moved up to New England. And I called him because he was at Brown, which is part of Providence Hospital, is part of Brown. And it's also part of Tufts New England Medical Center. And he gave me some options, and he's the one who recommended that I come up there to see this radiation oncologist who was doing the IMRT. And were you still scared at this point? I was very depressed and I was definitely frightened, yes. Right. I know those feelings. I had them too. So when you got up there, what experience did you have with the doctors there? Because all of a sudden you're switching now from being Dr. Alan Roberts in your own little fishbowl to being a patient. Right. That was very traumatic, going from being a doctor to a patient and particularly with these two of them, the the radiation oncologist and one other of his associates. Uh, I didn't know them, and and they didn't know me. And we did take my slides up to the pathologist at Providence, Rhode Island, but I did that with my friend, Alan Potus, who's the urologist up there. But these guys, I, I must say, you know, I didn't know what I was doing when I went up to see them. I was going on the basis of what Alan Potus told me, but I didn't know anything about IMRT. I didn't know how anything about the procedure they would do to localize the prostate 
so that they would give the radiation mostly to it and not to the surrounding tissue and all that kind of stuff. I had no knowledge of that whatsoever. So did you find that they treated you differently because you were a physician? Did they know you were a physician, first of all, and did they call you doctor or did they call you by a mister? Or, or? They called me doctor. They knew I was a doctor, and absolutely I think they treated me differently. Better or worse? You know what? It's a mixed bag. I think in some ways it was better, and I felt they were talking to me more as a physician patient rather than just as a patient. On the other hand, I didn't want them to treat me differently than any other patient. Right. Did you find that they were talking to you in medical jargon more than... Oh, yeah. And did you comprehend everything they said? No. I asked them a lot of questions because they were talking about you know, doing a computer model and putting this kind of seed and that kind of seed and all this to identify the prostate itself and how many reds, how many gray I would get. Right. I mean, I had no idea what they were talking about. Yeah, I understand that. We sometimes forget that we're just because we're doctors, we're in a different field. So how has your illness led you to see patients' experiences in a different light if it has? Oh, I mean, it was like a sea change for me. It was like going from being sort of a, you know, uh, an arrogant professional to being a human being, more humble, more empathic than I could possibly ever have been. It gave me a feeling of what, as a patient, what my patients must be feeling that I never had any thought of. It never occurred to me until I was the patient that I could identify with them from a humanistic standpoint. So that movie, The Doctor, remember that one? Yes, I do. So now it makes more sense to you, doesn't it? A lot more sense. As a matter of fact, I've used that movie here because I teach ethics here, and I do use that movie. But yes, it makes a lot more sense. Okay, so talk to me about your perspectives on treatment. We always tend to believe that outcomes are not what matters, but... Side effects can be extremely important to patients. What was your experience? I know that I took Flomax and I walked into a glass wall and drove my car up on a curb and ruined tires, and nobody told me that that was one-tenth of one percent or something of side effects, and I had them. How about you? Yeah, you know, I had no idea what symptoms I was going to get from the radiation, inflammation of the rectum, the radiation proctitis, the bladder irritation, all the rest. The thing that got me most, that I could not stand was the fact that I had to be on anti-androgen treatment for 18 months. Being impotent, being without testosterone, was absolutely the worst experience other than my daughter's death that I have ever experienced. Were you told about the side effects or was it just assumed that you knew? No, nobody mentioned anything about the side effects. So maybe this is something we need to give to our listeners. Like, we need to hear about, you're absolutely right about these side effects. I'm going into knee surgery, and uh, this is the second one, so I know what to expect the first time I never got it. All right, you talk in the book about spirit. What do you mean by spirit, and what's your experience with the importance of spirit? Well, when I left the medical college here to go up there for three months, I took a three-month leave of absence. Dan Ron, who is my good friend and a tennis partner and also the vice chair of the Department of Medicine. The one thing he said to me is, says, number one, keep a diary, and number two, it's going to take you a lot of spirit to get through this. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, well, he said, you're really going to have to have spirit 
courage. You're going to have to go through this and not let it get to you. And I assume by that, I know exactly what he meant because I know what I was feeling when I went up there and started the treatment. I felt like I was just an impotent old man and I could have gone either way. I mean, you know, my feelings were so chaotic at that point that I couldn't, I really couldn't deal with it if I didn't have that spirit. Okay, well, I guess a hero is a guy who's scared and does it anyway. That's my definition of it. I think you're right. We've got just a short period of time. What would you say most surprised you about your experience? I would say the thing that surprised me most was that I survived this long. How's your health now? Since that time, I had developed a bladder cancer, which was able to be removed. And uh, then I had a recurrence. And they removed that, and now it's been two years with BCG installation into the bladder. So I have not had any further recurrence since my last cystoscopy. So I would say that I have not been on antiandrogens, and that has been a blessing. Thank you. Well, I think you're a blessing to the profession. I hope you continue to teach this to your students about being a human being, and I hope they never have the experience but can learn it from you. I hope so, too. Uh, Alan, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I've been talking with Dr. Alan Roberts, author of the memoir, Hot Flashes in a Cold World, My Struggle to Be a Husband, a Doctor, and a Man in the Face of Prostate Cancer. Please get the book and read it. Encouraging words from Michael Greenberg. And that about does it for today's episode of Second Opinion Live. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Dr. Michael Greenberg's coming back for the next show. In the meantime, here's hoping he's cursing a blue streak and getting better quickly. Thanks to Paula, Tony, Alex in the control booth. You guys are miracle workers as usual. Until next time, everyone, stay healthy, America.